0: Well, hello everyone. My name is Chris, and I'm the Student Ministries Director here at Agora Bible Fellowship. Uh, we are so thankful that you have joined this online service that we have for you. Uh, and just to let you know that our heart is for everyone to be connected to a local body of believers, uh, a local church. And that this online service is used just uh, as a supplement if you're out of town, traveling, vacation, or for work, or if you're unable to attend on the weekend. A couple of things I want to remind you of. The first thing is that uh, you can text us your prayer request, your confidential prayer request at 97,000-9700. And we love praying for you. Stephanie will respond right away, so you can go ahead and do that. Uh, The other thing is we have a lot going on every single week here at Agora Bible Fellowship. And if you want any information about our various events, life groups, uh, ways to serve, uh, anything going on throughout the week, our website is the best place to start at agorabible.org, and you can go there at any time, and you get all the information. Lastly, we are so thankful for your ongoing generosity and support. Uh, We cannot uh, be doing what we do uh, without your support, so we're so thankful for that. On our website, you can go to the Give tab, and you can donate there, and we just ask that you prayerfully consider uh, donating. Uh, So with that said, uh, let's go ahead and get into God's Word. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, Chris, and thank you for joining us online. So good to be together each week and spending time and uh, uh, getting into God's Word. And hopefully this time is a blessing. We really uh, give thought and preparation to just having this prepared uh, for you specifically online to be uh, blessed by a time in the Word together. And so I want to invite you to turn with me. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's hard to believe we're already uh, 10 weeks into this series uh, chapter seven you might remember uh, last week I had entitled the message the Talk and the reason I get called it the talk is because it was outlining God's design and God's plan for sex within uh, marriage and it's kind of the the talk that we uh, not necessarily look forward to having with our our kids and uh, but it's a, an important one an important one to have that foundation and understanding of God's design and his plan and I was thinking, uh, just to be honest with you, as a, as a pastor, I was like, "Oh man, a little bit of an exhale on the other side of that." As much as you might not like talking to your preteen about it, imagine if you had the responsibility of sharing that with 500 plus uh, adults. And so there's a little bit of exhale last week, but then I get into this week's text, and I'm like, "Oh man, this week we're addressing things like conjugal rights within marriage." And so I'm like, "All right." Well, welcome back to ABF. And what I do appreciate though about the book of 1 Corinthians is he's writing this letter to these uh, young believers and he's not speaking in vague generalities, but instead he's addressing like real life topics, stuff that they're dealing with, stuff, uh, it's not just a a general ideas and principles, but stuff that they're walking through on a day-to-day basis. And so hopefully you're receiving the text the same way that I do with real uh, practical application. In this uh, particular week, we learn as we're working through the text, we learn that The Corinthians during this time apart from Paul actually wrote him a letter with questions to be answered and so this week, we're starting to see some of that unfold of what the questions were, how Paul addresses them, and speaks to definitely real-life situations, probably more most specifically under the umbrella this week of just clarifying what marriage was supposed to look like, what singleness is supposed to look like, what part of the church each play. And so looking forward to breaking this down today, definitely a super practical. Let me just pray before we work through the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for this time, this time to be in your word and be together even online and uh, just spending time uh, just working through uh, the book that you've left us with, your words, your direction, your instruction for us, God. I pray that we'd be open to input in this topic that we wouldn't have it all figured out, that we'd be open to maybe some correction in our thinking, some adjustments to be made in our marriages, some rethinking of singleness. God, I I just ask that you'd teach us, that you'd shape us into your likeness more because of spending time in your word today. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to start right here in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, then in quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Verse two, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. All right, we'll stop there just for a moment. As I already uh, had mentioned, they're writing with questions to Paul and you can tell what the question is by what's in quotations there in those couple of verses, you see it uh, right out of the gates. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Basically, this is a, a co- kind of part question, part conclusion that they've come to based on the backdrop of the broken sexual state of their culture, their surroundings. They've come to the conclusion and basically what's being said here is in light of the brokenness attached to sex and our social climate that we're in, maybe it's best for us just to abstain from having sex with women. Basically, in response, the, uh, the knee-jerk reaction is saying, man, if it causes so much pain and destruction, has so much potential for harm, maybe it's better just for us to step away and not partake. But Paul is helping them work through this, finding a, a middle ground of what God's design and plan was. You see, we can swing the exact same pendulum and say, well, if uh, you can either go one direction in the Christian life, a life of li- license where everything's permitted. You don't really, are, aren't set apart. You're not living a holy life. You're not uh, any different than the world that you're immersed in. That's one option. That's the l- option of license. Or you can go the the route of law, where you start kind of like, the, uh, like, the, uh, the, like they did before Christ. They started adding new things to the law, things that weren't even in there. You're like, man, as if it's not hard enough to stay within the boundaries that God put in place. And so in this case, they're swinging the direction towards law and saying, maybe we need to just stay away from that. And he's saying, no, rather than doing that, In order to remain pure, in order to be honoring to God, he's basically following the the words of Beyonce, put a ring on it. This idea that, hey, all I'm asking you to do is instead of the alternative to sleeping around is just have your own spouse for men to choose a wife. For a wife to choose a husband? He's saying that, that, that's the solution, not to just completely abstain from it, but use it within the context in which it was designed. You see, God can still use a healthy marriage as a light to a broken world. So we're not to be done with marriage. We're not to throw it out. Instead, he's trying to restore and bring them back to their design. I was reading a a bit this week, a little background on the state of marriage at that time and period, and it was uh, really in disarray. A lot of confusion about marriage. Their culture impacted that fairly dramatically. Reading a little bit from uh, MacArthur on the subject, he was explaining one of the things that was a huge factor was that in Roman culture at that time, about one third of adults were slaves. So one third, 33% of the culture of that time were slaves. And here is the unique thing about slaves is they were not allowed to marry because they were considered property. They had no rights. They had no privileges. And so it was kind of a, a confusing thing for one-third of the population because they couldn't marry. And the reason they couldn't marry is because a slave owner, if they had married, had the option and freedom to sell one of them at any given time and really break up that union. So kind of a one sin rippled into impacting God's design in his structure for marriage, but a master did have a discretion that he would allow a male and a female to kind of operate under the umbrella of marriage, and they actually called them tent companions. Basically, they would live in a marriage-like scenario underneath the same tent. Basically, here is Paul's recognizing and realizing that he's writing to some that would be in a Tent relationship. So he's saying to that person, he's not specifying anything different for them as he is for anybody in the other types of marriage. He's saying an important thing is choosing one spouse and staying together, making the most out of a broken environment. Isn't that so much of what the Christian life is doing? It's trying to navigate a world that's fallen and, and flawed and, and marred and saying, hey, we're going to make the most out of it. And here, the important word is commitment. Choosing one spouse, a husband and a wife for a lo- lifetime. Another type of, of marriage that was popular of that age is after one year of living together outside of a marriage They had something that was called USUS, U-S-U-S, which basically was this idea that you're considered after that amount of time to be married. It's kind of like present day, what we'd call common law. So people that had been living together long enough, they're like, well, those are people are considered married because of that. So he's speaking to that group. He's saying, if you, it doesn't matter what brought you here, what got you here is to remain in that commitment a third group of how marriage or third group of uh, marriages is called coemptio in manum which is kind of an interesting term and expression which actually means present day means marriage by sale so that was the idea that they had the option in that time period for a man to come to a father with a, a dowry, a dollar amount, that's not necessarily dowry, more in that time of exchange of, uh, of a goats or, or cattle, uh, in exchange sheep saying, I'll give you this many sheep or this many goats in exchange for your daughter's hand in marriage. I think that idea sounds great, having two daughters of my own. Now, I'm just teasing, but this idea was basically they would go back and forth in a little bit of negotiating and say, oh, I need two more uh, sheep, and then it's a done deal, and that was the exchange, and that's how they came to the uh, solution of how someone would be married. Kind of a, a scary reality if you think about it, but the same thing he's saying. He's putting all of these people underneath the same umbrella and saying, Choosing one husband, one wife for a lifetime. The fourth type of marriage I found this interesting. This type was kind of the more celebrated or the classy kind of marriage, if you will. It was called confariation, uh, was the, this type of marriage. And it would be almost exactly like today's Christian wedding. And you're just like, what are you talking about to, Like today's Christian wedding? Basically, the Christian weddings that you're familiar with present day are based off of a pagan Roman marriage. Basically, our present day wedding ceremonies, they're not based off of Hebrew custom in the Old Testament. If you remember any type of study, they had their weddings that were a seven-day event. They had an engagement, betrothal period, very different from what we enact today. Basically, what happened is the Roman Catholic Church simply picked up the standard Roman ceremony and, in de- and a, adopted it for present day. And when the Reformation came, they chose not to touch it or alter it. It had become a tradition and pretty much it stood all the way to present day. Basically, this idea of two families coming together for a, for a ceremony, they picked a, a matron or... Uh, a maid of honor. They had a best man. That's where we got that idea that they would have to kind of validate the, the promises. They would share vows with each other. Uh, they would have prayers offered up for the, the new relationship. In that time period, it was prayers to Jupiter and Juno. Obviously, we've embraced that, uh, redirected that towards Jesus Christ. They had a wedding bouquet. The bride wore a veil over her face that would be removed at the point of uh, commitment. They even had the exchange of rings, keeping the wedding ring on the exact same finger that we still use it today. I found that interesting, even celebrating with a wedding cake at the conclusion. So lots of things that we have that parallel from that. But here's the idea, and part of the reason why I talked through that is because what Paul is saying to this confused, misdirected group that's coming from all different places, he's saying, I want to bring you back to God's design. I'm not trying to confront the, the different ways of what brought you there. Doesn't matter what your past looks like. Moving forward, we want to align with God's design is a commitment between a man and a woman for a lifetime. So that's what he chooses to point them to. It's kind of a cool thing and an invitation that we still have that stands today. Doesn't matter what Background you have, whether you're married in a courthouse, whether you're married on a, when you eloped, a Las Vegas wedding, what, whatever, a traditional ceremony, it's still the same call. It's the call to get, align ourselves with the, the, the direction and plan that God's put in place, and that is for a commitment. It really comes back to that, the vows that were made, and so there's not permission, there's not room to live with each other outside of mirrors, there's not, if you're doing, going any other route than God's plan of a commitment promises for a lifetime, then you're outside of his design. Some people say, well, doesn't God just accept me as I am? Yes, he accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we're at. He wants us to align with his design because he knows what's best. I know this is a a touchy and sensitive topic for some and just know that I'm more than happy to work with couples to align yourself with God's plan and God's design to get it within the parameters that he has in place. So always feel the freedom to reach out if you want to have conversations about this further. Continue in the text as he outlines what marriage is to look like. Verse three says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. All right, let, let's pause here. Now, I want you to imagine just for a moment, you're sitting, put, put yourself in my shoes for a mo- moment. You're sitting in my office, you're reading through this, te- this text. My question is, how would you explain this section to you? How would you explain this section to you? Honestly, there's some very unpopular uh, ideas that are packed into the, this little section of scripture. This idea that we don't mention conjugal rights when we're trying to get our spouse in the mood. It's not a, a topic that we necessarily want to bring up, this idea that there's an expectation, but that's the reality reality. We resist the idea that there's authority, that someone else has authority over my body. We shout in our, as a culture, my body, my choice. We don't like to discuss the reality that within the context of marriage, marriage has certain obligations and expectations. We like to push that idea away. What Paul is saying is, was very controversial in that day as well. I find it interesting, what would have been more controversial than anything in that day and age wasn't the idea of being having to submit to someone else was what he actually starts this section with. The husband should give to his wife conjugal rights. The fact that he says that your body as a husband is not your own, that it belongs to your wife. You see, in that day and age, women were not held in high regard. So some of the people that would push back and see like, hey, Paul just had outlined uh, parameters that kind of adjusted for the culture. It couldn't be any farther from the truth. He's calling them to something radically different than what they were familiar with. A life of submission, a life of turning over my rights to my spouse, a right of, of elevating their needs above my own. You see, unfortunately, in our culture, in our day and age, and probably in theirs as well, sex had become something that was all about personal gratification. Selfish sex, if you will. That was about my pleasure and my wants. He's saying, listen, you need to elevate your spouse. You're no longer yours. You're a gift to them. See, he's disrupting the thinking of that day. Unfortunately, uh, with it, even within marriage, sex is often used as a, as a, a means of negotiation or a, a means to get back. You know, if, if you've done something wrong, then no sex for you. If, there, if you're wanting to get something, that you use it as a negotiating, like a chip that could, would be exchanged. That's so far from God's design Instead, he's saying, don't withhold, don't deprive your spouse is the word that he uses here. But if you think about it, what's he actually talking about? Sometimes we get so defensive and you're like, wait a second, what is he asking us not to deprive them from? You are, we are referring to something that's designed for our pleasure and for our enjoyment. It's something, it's a, a gift from God. There's a, a reason that the Song of Solomon spent so much time celebrating the physical parts of marriage. I find it interesting when I talk to a new couple and you maybe are asking them about when, what their plans are for future kids, if that's part of their conversations. And a lot of times they'll, they'll use the expression, they'll say, well, we're working on it as if they're, they're having to carry in groceries from the car. It's not something that's a, a miserable thing that God's actually outlined and called us to partake in. He's saying, this is a gift that I've given you and I want you to share it. I don't want you to be stingy with it within the context of marriage. Sex is intended to be enjoyed. I so was reading this uh, week, or listening actually this week, there was a University of Chicago, a sociologist by the name of Edward Lawman. He did extensive research on what brings the most satisfying sex, uh, or what brings a person the most satisfying sex life. It's interesting because <laughs> to us it might not be a surprise, but to his audience, the conclusion after much study was that the most satisfying sex actually happens within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's like, it was like all of a sudden this like aha moment, just shocking for the reader. But what scripture has taught us and God's plan and his design is that's what he's set up. Think about it. A lot of times people are like, well, I don't necessarily feel like uh, I want to have sex because I don't feel connected with my spouse. I, I feel like they're, we're at odds. I think sex, if you think through it, is a wonderful thermometer for the, where your relationship is at. It doesn't allow you to neglect that relationship because you're pushed to work through stuff. To, to solve things, to, to move towards dating your spouse, to move towards treating them well, to move towards listening and, and caring about them. Man, because otherwise nobody wants to have a sexual relationship with your spouse when there's tension involved. So it's a barometer, it's a thermometer, it's something that moves us towards reconciliation because it's intended to be an ongoing part of a healthy marriage relationship. It's interesting, the reason that Paul gives, he's basically saying the reason not to withhold, and he gives one caveat, you notice it there, you can li- it can be limited if you come upon that as an agreement together. In other words, not just one person deciding it, if you both decide that you're gonna take a pause on, on a first season, but do you notice the reason for it? The one reason for it is to take time to pray. It's not because uh, I I need a break, I need to get away from you for a season. He's saying instead, just when you need time to specifically focus on your relationship with God, a time of prayer, an agreed upon amount, that's when there's room for the distance. But here, he says a healthy sexual relationship is also, the reason is because it's a deterrent to affairs. We're vulnerable to, to temptation if we're not regularly sexually active within marriage. It's ironic if you think about it, the enemy of our souls wants us to have as much sex as possible outside of marriage and then as little sex as possible within marriage. It's ironic how he's wanting to steal our joy But here, if you think through it from this perspective that he brings up, if we truly love our spouse, we wouldn't want to put them in a place where they may fall to sexual temptation. Now, this entire section, I'll be honest with you, it might irritate you to read this. You might be frustrated even listening to me talking about it. But here's the reality, is I didn't write this section of scripture. Paul didn't write this section of scripture. If we believe what scripture says about itself, it says that it's God breathed, that God directed us towards this, that we need to think through, this is the manufacturer's design. What he's put in place saying, this is what's best for you. You have to trust me in this. If you think about it, so many of God's directives in our lives are a trust exercise. We think, because it's kind of a collision of, we think we might know better, and he's saying, no, this is best. And we think we want to wander and go a different direction. He's like, no, this is best. I made you. I know a little bit better than you do. So here this is an invitation for conversations, even within those of us listening that are married, to have conversations, to work through this. Hearing recently from a, a local counselor how many marriages struggle with this. One, it's either infrequent or rare. And even some marriages where it's hardly ever, if at all, a part of the marriage. But this was God's design, his plan that he put in place. We'll continue just reading in the text to see what, what he outlines. In verse 6, he says, Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish... That all, whereas I, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So, what is Paul saying here? First, he's saying. Notice he says it's not a command, but it's a concession. So, what is a concession? But basically, concession by definition means a preferential allowance. So, what Paul is saying is this is Paul's personal preference. It doesn't mean that it's not the word of God. Some people are like, well, is he stepping away? Is this no longer the word of God? You see, God worked through man to communicate different perspectives. And so he wanted his audience to hear from Paul what his preference was as it related to being single or being married. Paul's conclusion, Paul's personal preference on the subject was that everybody would go the same route that he went, choosing a life of singleness. He's recognizing that there's benefits to this. But he also realizes, he says this, each has his own gift from God. What does that mean? Basically, God. he's saying God has wired up each person differently. He recognizes this. He's saying, I lean this direction as, as far as preference. Somebody else might lean a different direction. A lot of people believe that at one point Paul was actually married. We don't know for sure on the topic. There's a strong possibility that he was in Acts 26, 10 through 11. It talks about him uh, being a voting member of the the Sanhedrin. In order to be part of the Sanhedrin, you needed to be married. And so there's a, a case that could be made. There's some people that push back. I'm not trying to say that we know one way or another. Scripture isn't very specific on this, but he's speaking from his life experience, and maybe he was either his spouse passed away, maybe she left after his conversion. We don't know what actually took place in Paul's experience as it relates to marriage, but we do know one thing, that he's come to a conclusion that he prefers a life of singleness. So here's the thing to understand, because in the, the American church, we have a tendency to idolize marriage and family. But he's saying man you're not a a second class citizen in fact i even prefer that you would choose to go the route of singleness a lot of times we think of a somebody that's single or we might if we are single buy into the lie of the enemy oh man i i'm just i'm just not meeting the expectations of society i'm falling short or there's something wrong with me but paul's saying man it's actually there's a lot of benefits attached. Later in the the book, it'll even expound on that more. But here the idea is this, that we're already talking about. there. There's certain obligations that someone that is married has, that somebody that's single, just doesn't have to deal with. Even just think through the the practical of it. If I were to say tonight, hey, let's go let's go out and look to engage in conversations over at the mall with people about spiritual things. A lot of I've made some phone calls. I imagine a lot of families might say, well, I can't. I got to get the kids into bed. I've got we've got soccer still. We've got homework to work through. Whereas the single person might pick up the phone and be like, sure. I got all kinds of flexibility, all kinds of freedom. Here, Paul, if you think about it, from a kingdom perspective, often singleness is the ideal position in which to minister from. You often have the flexibility to follow promptings without hesitation. Think about that for a moment, even as far as expectations. There's also room for a lot more relationships outside of the family context. You're like, man, I can have a lot of just deep, like significant friendships and relationships, people that I can invest in. There's lots of benefits. Here's the confusion sometimes. Sometimes we think that the word single means alone. The word single doesn't mean necessarily that you're alone. I like this picture of this meme that I saw this week, some of the misunderstanding this lady that believes that she needed to make some friends. And so obviously in her knitting class, she made some of her own friends. I don't think that that's what it's talking about, but somebody that's single, this idea, this picture of being alone, man, you have room for all kinds of in-depth, significant relationships if you choose to invest in people. So other benefits, and we'll get a chance to talk about this more, other benefits I would suggest is also being single can be an accelerator for this idea if we're trying to grow in our intimacy with Jesus Christ. And a lot of room, a lot of margin to spend time developing that relationship, being in the word, being in prayer, and leaning into some of the benefits of being single. And definitely Anyone would make the case that it's way better to be single than married to the wrong person. So yeah, How many times over the years in ministry, my heart has broken for somebody that clearly has made a, a rough choice as far as a life partner. And you're just like, man, I am so sorry. That's such a difficult situation that you're in because of the choice. And so it's not something obviously that you want to rush into. It's something that you prayerfully consider, that you really deeply seek God's direction and don't just choose to go that route because the tide of the culture points you that way. Here Paul is suggesting that here singleness is another option that's not a bad one. Continuing the last two couple verses here it says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. <laughs> I think it's funny his perspective here. First off, I, I like the uh, point that he makes. He says, it's good for them to remain single. In other words, stay put where you're at. The single person or the person that's, that's lost somebody. Basically, here's the idea that I lean towards as he's calling them to remain where they're at is you lose the benefits of singleness if you spend all of your singleness in an anxious pursuit to get out of it. Do you follow what I mean? If you're constantly thinking, man, if, if you're consumed with this thought, oh, if I could just get married, then my life would start. Then there'd be so many good things to come. Man, oh, if I was just, if I just had a family, if I just had this, and you end up, wasting all of those years or time of singleness that had tons of great options and benefits, as we've already discussed some of them, man, he's saying it's better for you just to remain where you're at, to to live in the moment is the picture that I have as receiving this, to to seize the day, to, to not live in the what if or someday kind of thinking, but instead remain where you're at be, trust that God's in control. Trust that he's doing what he wants to do in your life. And there's amazing things, whether you're married or single. It's interesting because it seems like Paul has a pretty rotten view of marriage here if he sees the only benefit of it to meet your uncontrolled urges. What is he saying there? He's saying, hey, if you can't control your lust and your passion, then it's probably better for you to just go ahead and get married. But here's the thing as he's weighted, if you, if you think about it, the, the weight of the amount of conversation that's about marriage within Scripture based on the, how much is talked about singleness. This is a very short window that's giving hope and speaking to the person that's single. And much more of marriage is directed, uh, or m- much more, uh, I'm sorry, much more of Scripture is directed about marriage. There's lots of benefits to marriage. I liked a list that I came upon this past week that just outlined six benefits. I just want to touch on those since we spent some time talking about benefits of being single. Benefits of marriage, they all start with P. I think it was definitely a Baptist root to this list here. The first one is a common sense one, procreation. Obviously, within marriage, if sex is to be intended only within marriage, if we weren't to have marriage, you wouldn't have any new people. We'd be one generation from extinction. So procreation is the obvious one. We've already alluded to the second one is the idea of pleasure. It's intended to to be within the context of marriage, something that is pleasurable. Uh, In uh, Proverbs 5 talks about the pleasure found within the marriage bed. Provision. Wife is described as a helpmate or the, for the wife to be seen as the weaker vessel and for the husband to be a support and provider, both of which is a, a good thing. It can be seen as a provision from God, as a, a support with my wife and her uh, current recovery from her knee surgery. Man, I'm seeing with a one, uh, my one-legged wife what, how much she normally does in a day and having to pick up some of the, the slack of what she normally does, you start to realize, man, she's a huge provision and a huge help and blessing to our family. So procreation, pleasure provision partner. There's many examples of this that you can point to, just the benefits of having somebody that you're doing life with, a a close friend. I've seen over the years, Adrian and I just get just tighter and tighter, just have have so many shared experiences together. Picture is the fifth word. Picture, Ephesians 5, describes how marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. 6-1, purity, as is mentioned in this section of scripture, helps keep us from fornication. So, basically leaving room for both. That, As he described in the last section, he says, hey, some are called towards marriage. Some are called towards singleness. There's benefits. There's cases that could be made for both of them, but for us to stay again within the parameters that God has set. Think about what he's already touched on. First off, he said, listen, if you're in confusion about whether or not I can partake in sex or not, what does he tell him? He says, No, the one way that you can partake is if you choose a husband, if you're if you're a woman choosing a husband to be with for a lifetime, if you're a woman choosing a, a, a husband to be with, basically allowing them to say, if you want th- that experience, then you're gonna need to make a commitment for a lifetime. Within that commitment, Understanding that there's some obligations, as he talked about, even within sex, within marriage, that there are expectations, that it's not just about me and my wants and my pleasures, but about elevating the other one. And the cool thing that you see when you actually get that right to some degree is actually you receive so much more from it when you have that mentality going into it. And then lastly here in this last section is some of the benefits of singleness, that God can use that. Paul's even saying, I've chosen that and actually prefer it. If the apostle Paul that impacted so many people's lives that were such a huge part of God using him to build his church, if he's come to that conclusion, there's got to be something that we can receive from that. Obviously, a lot of stuff to uncover in this section of scripture. It picks up uh, next week even with more in this conversation. So we'll uh, dive back in next week. But hopefully a few things for us to think through, to wrestle through, to seek God on, and to not conclude that I know better than God on some of these subjects, to be submissive to him, even in topics that we might disagree. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time in your word, for a chance to see what plan you've put in place, even when it may collide so directly with the plan that our culture suggests. And I thank you that you have our best interest in mind. I pray that we'd see scripture from that mindset, that we'd embrace things. Maybe there's some conversations that need to be happening within some of the marriages within our church. Maybe there's some conversations that need to uh, be brought up. Maybe for the single person, this is the encouragement that they needed to have to, to make choices, to, to live in the moment, not just living in the potential of a different future, but to fully seize what God's laid before them today. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for, again, this chance to be in your word. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.